This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. So I just want to welcome those that are streaming in. Welcome everybody that are still in their cars. Welcome everybody here in front of me. My name is uh, George Lawrence, George Nicholas Lawrence. I'm the young adults pastor here, if you don't know who I am. Um, Young married, young adults. Um, My wife and my child is there at the back. And our expectant child, I don't know how to say that, our child in, in the womb. We have a second one coming in September, praise God. Another baby girl. I'm just going to give a moment for the ushers to finish walking through the through the through the aisle. Um, as we just wait, if, uh, yeah, the, the 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 message that I want to share with us um, that I feel the Lord has been asking me that I've been really challenged with this past while. So please understand, as I'm preaching, I'm preaching to myself, and then you guys are just listening to what I'm saying. Um, if the Holy Spirit convicts you, then great. Um, if the Holy Spirit does something in your life, amazing. Uh, but it's this question that, I, that, that, that the Lord has been pressing on my heart um, for a couple of months now, and I haven't been able to put it into words as well as I have now, which I'm thankful for. But he's asking me this question, and it's the, the sermon title is, Whose Kingdom Is It? Whose Kingdom Is It Really? Because we, so if you don't know, we, our, our scripture for the year, our vision for the year is Matthew 6, verse 33. Well, basically like that whole piece from verse 19 to verse 33. But it's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. You can go and read it for yourself again, meditate on it. Um, but what I found is that we oftentimes get a bit lazy and then we say seek first the kingdom of God seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and then we distill it down to saying just seek first the kingdom and and we, and we know what we mean but I, and it's it's a small thing but i think it so often becomes something very important something significant when we forget that it's the kingdom of God that we are seeking and that it is his righteousness that we are seeking um i think you know because we, we want to do this, but we we kind of water it down in our minds a bit. I don't know, maybe that's just the way that I think. Um, but the question that I kind of want to follow up with who, you know, whose kingdom is it really is how do we measure if we are seeking his kingdom? How do we, how do we actually measure it? Because it's very easy for us to say, yeah, yeah, let's seek first the kingdom of God. But, but what does it look like? How do we measure if we are actually seeking his kingdom? And we determine whose kingdom we're seeking. We, we determine if we are seeking the kingdom by determining who has authority in our lives. Who, who has the final say? Is it you? Is it me? Do we have the final say in our lives or is it God? Is it scripture? Is it the Holy Spirit that brings conviction that has the final say in our lives? And I think in that way we can truly determine if we are seeking the kingdom of God. And um, with that being said, at, at this time, I'm, I'm being made very aware of our sinful nature, seeing as that we have a one-year-old daughter in our, in our house. 
Like, I'm very aware of the fact that we are born into sin and that we are completely depraved um, just by the fact that um, we don't naturally want to listen. We don't naturally want to do things that are right for us, but we want to do what we want to do. And we will throw a tantrum if we can't do what we want to do. So, so, I'm, being, so I'm being very made very aware of this. Um, our daughter is amazing. She's an angel. Um, but she has her moments, <laughs> um, as we all do, as we all do. We all, you know, we're, most of us have embarked on this journey of sanctification and purification. So, you know, there's areas of our lives where we were, we're a bit better than what we were. But still there's these areas of sin in our lives, these areas where we are very aware that we are opposed to God. And I think a good measure of our spiritual life, a good measure to determine how, how, what does the health of your spiritual life look like, is to look at our prayer life, is to look at how do we pray, what do we pray, how often do we pray. And to, to look at that, we're going to go to the Lord's Prayer um, that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew 6. But just before we do that, there's a quote that you can maybe throw onto the screen um, yeah, that quote. And I've heard this quote so many times. I've never heard who, quote, who, who said the quote, probably because I, I have no idea how to pronounce that surname. McShaney, McChini, McShaney. Um, but we'll just call him Murray for now. Um, but what a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. What a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is, and no more. And this, this quote, has, I've, I've heard it quite a lot and many times in my life, and, and it rings true. There's something that resonates in my heart and in my, in my life with, with a quote. But there's, at the same time, there's something that I'm, I don't grasp it completely. Because I'm thinking, like, there's so much more to the Christian life than, than just prayer itself like there's outreach and fellowship and church and, and there's all these different aspects so what makes murray say this what makes him believe this and i think um you can throw the next quote on onto the screen is j.i packer shed some light on this i think he says it really beautifully sums it up you guys can read with on the screen and he says people feel a problem about prayer because of the muddle they are in about god if you are uncertain whether God exists or whether he is personal or good or in control of things or concerned about ordinary folk like you and me, you are bound to conclude that praying is pretty pointless, not to say trivial, and then you won't do it. What he's saying is if we don't understand who God is, if we don't understand that he is king who rules and who reigns over this earth, that he is good, that he is faithful, that he actually cares and he wants an intimate personal relationship with us, that he's actually interested in your life. Then we wouldn't believe, we wouldn't come to him in prayer if we don't believe these things. And I think underlying on a deeper level, what we need to realize is that if someone else or something else is on the throne of our lives, then we wouldn't need to go to God for any of our needs or any of our concerns. We wouldn't need to go to God in prayer. Who is on the throne of our lives? Because if I'm on the throne of my life, if you are on the throne of your life, you are king, you are God of your own life, why would you need to go to God for anything? 
Why would you need to go to God in prayer? And I think this is why it's so important why he sheds light on, on, on what Murray is saying is that when we come to God in prayer, we acknowledge that he is the one who sustains us. He's the creator and sustainer of the world. What is the state of your prayer life? I want you to take just a moment and just think about what is the state of your prayer? <laughs> what is the state of your prayer life? How often do you pray? Is it difficult for you to commune with God? Is it difficult for you to express your needs to God? Is it difficult for you to pray for people that are lost around you? Is it, is it difficult for, for you to just engage with God in worship? What is the state of your prayer life? I want us to look at Matthew 6 um, when the disciples ask Jesus, they ask, Jesus, how, how should we pray? And I think a, a more direct teaching in the Bible we won't get where the disciples just come straight up to Jesus and ask him a question. And for once, Jesus isn't answering them in a parable or like throwing a question back at them, but he's just like, okay, this is how you pray. You know, like for once, Jesus is just straightforward with them. And he's like, this is how you pray. Verse nine, pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also uh, we have we as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and then the tag that comes on in the end, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. And I found that we you know, if you've been in a Christian circle for a while or if you've read through the gospel of Matthew, or if you grew up in a Christian home, you would have heard this prayer, English, Afrikaans, of course, that doesn't matter. You would have heard it many times. And I think it, in, in a sense, we might've become very familiar with the words of this prayer. As I'm reading it, as, as you're reading it and mouthing it with me, you may be not even looking at the screen and just mouthing it with me. Maybe the depth of what we are praying, the depth of what Jesus is teaching here has maybe been lost to you. With that being said, I want us to just briefly run through it. I, I think we could spend a service on each of these um, verses and each of these lines. But just for the sake of, um, you know, I want, I, want to, I want us to get to the end of the, the, the sermon. I just want to briefly run through it. But that first part where he just says, not pray then like this, but our Father. Our Father. It's so beautiful because if we say our Father, it implies that we are his children. And it gives us the, the attitude, the, it gives us the access to God that we have to our father, to our parents. That parent-child relationship, that safety, that freedom that we have to come. But not only that, it, it says that we're not alone. Our father, not my father, our father. It says that we have brothers and sisters that are with us in this. So it sets the attitude with which we come to say, wow, I have access. I can come boldly before the Father. That second phrase, in heaven. And even though he is our Father, he is still God. He is still God Almighty that rules and that reigns with power from on high. And we need to remember that. As we flow into the next phrase, it says, hallowed be your name. And when he says your name, he's talking about the person of God. Not just that God 
is the name of God is holy, but his person, who he is, is holy. And if God is holy, then we approach him. We need to approach him with awe and reverence. With the fear of the Lord, we need to approach him. And there's this, there's this beautiful tension between having freedom and access into the throne room of God because he is our father, but he's still God and he's still holy, so there needs to be awe and reverence when we come to him. And then in the middle of this prayer that Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray is this phrase, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Here we are praying for the public display of God's rule through salvation. We're praying for his lordship to be seen and submitted to and his saving grace experienced. We're praying that God's kingdom, his ways, his statutes, his laws, his commandments would manifest themselves in the world around us. How profound is that, that we're praying and we're asking God to manifest himself in the world around us, but not only in the world around us, in ourselves, in our lives. He's asking, we're asking God, would you come and be king of my life? Would you come and be king of my household? Would you come and be king of my neighborhood, of my town, of my workplace? Would you come and be king there? God's kingdom is not a place, but rather a relationship. It exists wherever people enthrone Jesus as Lord of their lives. Is Jesus Lord of your life, or are you Lord of your life? Who has the final say in your life? Because we can so quickly move past this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, without realizing what we are praying we're praying for the manifestation of God's kingdom in our lives, around us. Because it's one thing to say that Jesus is Lord. It's one thing to say it with our mouths. It's another thing to have it manifest through our actions, through the way that we treat the poor and the needy, the way that we treat the rich, the way that we treat our co-workers, our enemies, the way that we love people, the way that we treat our finances and our resources. When we pray this, we're saying, Lord, come and be king. God, come and be king. No longer my way, but your way. That's what we're confessing. And there's this beautiful encounter in John 3 with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a, was a Pharisee and um, a well-known Pharisee, like the Pharisee of Pharisees. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, must I enter into the womb for a second time? And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Like, that's, that's not possible. Don't try that. Don't do that. Um, you need to be born again of the Spirit. And what that implies for us, what it means for us to be born again of the Spirit, is to say that the old has died. I am no longer king of my life. I no longer have the final say in the way that I run my life, but God does. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to confess that Jesus is Lord. Your will be done. We're praying that God, may your commands and your purposes be perfectly fulfilled in and through our lives around us. May your commands and your purposes be perfectly fulfilled. And I'm going to, I'm just going to focus on that because I think it's so easy for us to, uh, 
to focus on, on, on the part of the prayer that implies to us that, you know, that, we, that God provides our bread, that we're pardoned of sins, and that we're kept from temptation and the tempter. It's very easy for us to focus on that, you know, to zoom in on, you know, God providing for our basic needs and coming in repentance because it has to do with us because we're selfish in nature. That's just the way that we do things. But there's a re I specifically wanted to focus on that part of who is God. We've started to confuse with who is serving who. Am I on this earth to serve God and to bring him glory? Or am I expecting God to serve me and to give me prosperity and wealth and riches? We, re we need to realize, as James says, that God is jealous for us. But he is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. He's Lord of your entire life or he's not Lord at all. Like, I haven't thought too much about this, but I don't think that God's going to contend with us for who's going to be on the throne of our life. Either he's going to give us over to our own desires and our passions, or he's going to be Lord over everything. And to kind of drive that home, I want to just use a last example. It's a little bit of a longer piece of scripture, but it's a story. So everybody can follow with as a story. Uh, Matthew, uh, Daniel 4 verse 29. I, know, I think it says on the board 28, but it's verse 29. So... This is in, in Daniel. It's that just after that famous um, scene that's in all the children Bible stories um, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the, into the furnace um, because they didn't bow down. King Nebuchadnezzar sees that they threw three guys in, but now there's four of them, and he's confused, and he calls them out. And he says, basically, summarizing, he says that, you know what, this God, this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is truly God of God. He is Lord of Lords. And um, anybody who speaks against this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb. And he's basically like, you know, God, Yahweh, God of these three guys is amazing. And then he has a dream again, and Daniel has to come and interpret the dream again. And basically the dream says, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are building your own kingdom. Cut it off. It's a big tree that comes. Cut the tree off because you, you need to serve me. That's basically what God is saying through the dream. And then we pick up um, after Daniel's interpreted the dream. And in verse 29, it says, At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and says, said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. Remember, God gave him the word to say, cut down your own kingdom. And this is, this is what King Nebuchadnezzar is saying. While the words, verse 31, while the words were still in, king, in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. 
And then there's this beautiful little poem that he, or, or song that he, that he writes, which um, we don't have time for. But in verse 37, it says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor of the King of Heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. See, God is not set, God doesn't want to settle for pieces of our lives. He wants everything. Just as with King Nebuchadnezzar, there was this pride in him that said, you know what, I am king, I am God. You know, look at the, the, this beautiful um, city that I have made, Babylon, from my power and for my majesty. And God says, whoa, 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 no, no, no. This is not the way it works. I told you this is going to happen. And at the end of time, at the end of those seven allotted periods where King Nebuchadnezzar comes back to himself, his response is not, God, how could you do this? His response is God was just to do what he did. For he is the one that is the most high. He is the one who puts people in their place. And there's a, there's a deep surrender that King Nebuchadnezzar experiences. To surrender to God's kingship. To his rule, to his authority. And for us it's the same. We need to surrender. Our response you know, it's, it's, you, you might be sitting there as, as I have for, for such a long time and be like, okay, then, then what, do we, what do we need to do? What, what, how, how should we respond? Because I think this is, this is something that God has been asking of the church for such a long time. These, well, for me, the last five years, I've been very aware of it. But it's probably since Jesus died on the cross that, that God has been asking of this. He says, the work is finished. It is done. I have won the victory. My invitation to life is there. My invitation to surrender is there. What will you respond? And his question is that to us today. How will you respond to my invitation? How will you respond to my kingship? How will you respond to my kingdom? Because ultimately God doesn't want us just to be passive and hear and think, yes, Jesus is Lord, but he wants us to act out that Jesus is Lord. Humility is the highway to surrender. One more piece of scripture as we, as we start to finish. Luke 7, uh, verse 37. So one of the Pharisees has now invited um, Jesus to eat with him, and we pick up in verse 36, sorry, my typing was terrible apparently. Um, one of the Pharisees asked him, doing Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, so basically a prostitute, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And uh, it's this, it's this, it's this intense scene. Like, just close your eyes for a moment, and just picture this. There's these guys, the Pharisees. They just want to get Jesus. They want to catch him out. They want to show that he's a false prophet. They want to, this kingdom that he's bringing is is not. Uh, 
is not the one that they have made, that they want, and they just want to get him out of their midst. And one of the Pharisees, his name is Simon, invites Jesus and probably his disciples in. So now it's like all these Pharisees that are already against Jesus and they want to try and catch him out. And the disciples that are against the Pharisees and it's this whole tense situation that they're already in in the house. Now they're reclining at the table. Just picture this in your mind. They're reclining at the table. And a prostitute walks in and starts wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears and anoints him. Like just imagine the tension in the air. Just imagine like how it must look. I think this is probably the one of the, one of the only times, you can open your eyes now. Um, this is probably one of the only times that the disciples and the Pharisees were probably in agreement thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, no, 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 this, this, is, not, this is not right. This, this mustn't happen. But just after that, Jesus responds and he says, because it says that Simon, the, the Pharisee that invited him, was thinking, if Jesus was really a prophet, if Jesus was really the teacher that he is, he would have known that this lady is a prostitute and he would have never let her touch him like that. I'm paraphrasing. And um, I don't know the scripture that well too. <laughs> um, and Jesus perceives what this guy is thinking, what Simon is thinking. And he says to him, Simon, can I say something to you? Now imagine the tension in the air already. And he's like, Simon, I want to speak to you. And Simon says, yes, teacher, say it. And he says, when I walked in, you didn't give me water to wash my feet. You didn't greet me with a kiss and you didn't anoint my head as any host would. As any host would, generally. This guy should know this. This guy should practice these things on a daily basis. But you did none of this. But since I walked in, this lady, this, this lady that you deem not worthy, you don't even see her as a person. You don't even acknowledge her existence as a human, hasn't stopped washing my feet, kissing my feet, and anointing my head. You see, I think underlying that, Jesus is saying to, to him that you've studied this your whole life. You've been waiting for this your whole life. For the Messiah, but you cannot even identify him when he's in your house. But this lady, who is apparently an outcast of society, can see that I am the Messiah, and she can see that I am the King, and she comes with what is probably scholars say a year's worth of salary in 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 the oil that she had, that fragrant oil that she had, and she comes to pour it out at my feet. She risks her reputation and, and what people will think of her. All eyes are on her and she's just humiliating herself even more at the feet of Jesus because she's surrendered to me. Because she identifies that I am king and nothing else matters. Church, I think this is what God is calling us to. To surrender our reputations to surrender our resources, to surrender our time, to surrender everything. And it's, you know, I'm going to be honest with this. It's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us everything. There's no way around it. This kingdom life, it, it requires all of us because God is either going to be Lord of everything in our lives or he's not going to be Lord at all. Even Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane struggled with this. 
And he was like, God, would you remove this cup from me? I know what is coming. I am in anguish for what is coming. Would you remove this cup from me? But there's the surrender when he says, but nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. No matter the cost, your will be done because you rule, I submit to you. You are king, your way. I see there's a couple of people in the, in the sun. We're, we're almost done. We're going to start wrapping up. And you might, you might, you know, this is my reaction when I hear give everything. Is I'm like, but, but how? how? How do I give everything? Like, I, we go back to Matthew 6, 33, or that whole piece where he says, do I not care for the birds of the air? Do I not care for the lilies of the field? How much more would I care for you? You see, seek first the kingdom of God and I will, and, and my righteousness, and I will provide all these things for you. The one who wants to save his life, the one who wants to take up his own life is the one that will not find life. But the one who loses his life for my sake is the one that will find eternal life. The call of the gospel is not half-hearted and it's not easy. It's not for the faint-hearted. But what I'm trusting for is that the Holy Spirit would come and do something in our hearts, would come and work in our hearts that we would be able to surrender. Remo, if we could maybe get the band up. I want to go back to my sinful child. Um, I think it's just such a beautiful uh, display of and, and picture of what I believe that, that, that God wants to do this morning. For some other reason, I don't know why it works like this, but when a child doesn't sleep enough, they don't want to sleep more. I'm, I'm going to ask God that when, <laughs> when I get to heaven one day, why it is like this. But anyway, when they're overtired, then they start kicking and screaming, as most of you would know. And they fight. They fight the sleep, which is so frustrating for me. But they fight the sleep. We as parents know that they should sleep. They, we know what is good for them. And in that moment, they just can't seem to grasp. doesn't matter how much we tell them and explain to them and how calm we stay. They don't want to sleep and they will throw a tantrum to not sleep. But the moment... The moment that they surrender to what we know is good, there's peace and there's tranquility. There is freedom. I believe there's some of us this morning that are fighting. We're fighting with God and it's good. It's good. We, we, we need to wrestle through these things with God. We need to really wrestle through it. But I think God is asking us, will you surrender to my way? to my kingdom. Will you surrender and let me be king? Let me rule over you so that you can live the kingdom life. Would you stand with me? Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.